0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Today, we begin a mini-series that we're calling Reckoning I-375. In each episode, we'll take a deeper look at an aspect of the plans to reimagine the highway whose construction helped destroy two predominantly black neighborhoods near downtown Detroit. How do we rethink that in a way that conjures justice from a history of injustice? Today, we'll begin with the voices of some of the people who lived in the area and who lost everything when the highway was built. That's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR.
1: 50s jumped 24-7. People worked hard. They played hard. You had people from all, from the South. And everybody came up. And it was family. Everybody took care of everybody. If you stayed on two blocks, three, three blocks, everybody knew each other. The kids, everybody got along. You didn't have to lock your door. We had party line phones and stuff. If one person had a TV on the block, the whole neighborhood would come and watch that one TV. I remember when TV came out, probably 48 or 49, a little small TV. It'd be 30 kids around trying to watch radio. Everything you did to family, the stuff, you had chores and stuff. You would cut wood, somebody would uh, shovel the snow, Grandmother would cook breakfast early in the morning, you know, but uh, we, we were family. If was uh, somebody got sick or husband got laid off, somebody on that block or whatever or next door would start having, cook some fish or whatever, chicken or have a card party and we would raise X amount of dollars so they would, wouldn't be able to get put out. They have their rent money at that particular time.
0: One of the hardest things to do in America is to admit when we've made a mistake, a tragic mistake, and go back and try to fix it. And that gets even harder when you think about our problems with race and geography and economics and cultural history. Right now, in southeast Michigan, we're facing an issue that calls on all of those things. I'm talking about the project to get rid of I-375, a very short freeway spur that leads you into downtown Detroit and has since the 1960s. But before that, I-375 was where Black Bottom and Paradise Valley, two majority black neighborhoods, existed. And these weren't just neighborhoods. For many years, Black Bottom was the only neighborhood that African-American Detroiters were allowed to live in. And so it grew up around the culture of Black Detroit,
2: my father's record shop was a kind of almost ragtaggle, glorified man cave. <laughs> it was a very serious venture. Uh, he uh, opened his record store and, at first, uh, populated it with records from his children. He raided his children's record collections when he got the opportunity to open his the storefront on 3530 Hastings Mm -hmm. and so I was just a little girl when the record store was on Hastings my memories of Hastings basically consist of playing with his cat Tom who lived back there And scrounging around the record shop, he had uh, microphones and such, and we would bang on the piano in the back of the record store. But I was uh, very young uh, in those days. I do remember looking out the door, the front door, onto Hastings Street and looking at the traffic.
0: It was where people lived. It was where people worked. It was where people played. Talk to anybody who lived in Black Bottom about the bars, the nightclubs. The fun things that existed there. And Paradise Valley, which was its commercial neighbor, was the heart of black business in Detroit.
1: Black men owned everything in Paradise Valley. I mean, the clubs, everything was black owned. Uh, All the musicians that came in town, black or white, came and hung in black Bottom. It was like, it was a special place. If you ever been in Harlem, in New York, Mardi Gras, or that was our Mardi Gras for mm-hmm. black folks entertainment. So we would work five, six days a week. But on Saturday and Sunday, or Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, you couldn't move in Paradise Valley. When I turned 16, probably in 61 or 62, I would drive friends there and drop them off. In Paradise Valley, you know, it was still, it was dying out, but it was still going on.
0: When I-375 was constructed and the neighborhood next to it, Lafayette Park, was built, Black Bottom and Paradise Valley had to go away. And they did very suddenly. Suddenly. But the plans to now remove I-375 don't really think about or address the very idea that brought it about, the destruction of Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. There is no talk of reforming a neighborhood that might call on Black Bottom or Paradise Valley. There's been little talk of whether we might make whole the families that lost everything when a new neighborhood and a highway came through their neighborhoods. There's no effort to reimagine this area, not simply as a recreation of the past, but as a symbol of a more just and inclusive future for everyone here in Detroit. When I look at the plans to replace I-375 with a six-lane street that would essentially perform the same function that the highway does. I don't see justice. I don't see reparation. In many ways, I don't even see Common sense. Here at WDET, we've been watching this project take shape, and we've had a few conversations about what's going on and what's possible. But over the next few weeks, we want to look more closely into the history of this area, into the proposal to replace I-375 with something else and into the possibilities. What could we do to make right what went wrong when Black Bottom and Paradise Valley were destroyed? How can we rethink that area in a way that repairs some of the damage that was done to the families, to the businesses, to the cultural institutions that had to go away in the name of progress. If we were going to do it that way, where would we start? Who would be at the table? And what would the process look like for deciding what's next? Right now, the process looks pretty strange. If you ask me, MDOT, which is the State Department of Transportation, is the agency that has been assigned to lead all of this. And they're doing what MDOT does. They're about roads. They're accountable for all the roads and their maintenance here in our state. So if you ask them, what should we do with this road? They're going to tell you. We should make another road. It can be a different road. Maybe it's a less cluttered road. Maybe it's a more beautiful road, but it's going to be a road. But before that was a road where I-375 stands, again, it was a neighborhood. It was a place where people lived and played and worked. Why shouldn't we be thinking of it in those terms, in terms of the future, why can't we reimagine something there that fixes what we broke? How would we do this if what we were after was reckoning? The idea of staring down the mistakes we made in the past and moving together. Toward a future that looks more just. Reckoning. That's what we're calling this look back and this look forward at I 375 and Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. How do we reckon with what we did and come up with something that we can all be really proud of in the future? And I think there's no other way to start that reckoning than with the voices of the people who dealt with the consequences of what happened. The people who lived in Black Bottom, the people who had businesses in Black Bottom and Paradise Valley, the people who remember a black Detroit that was defined by these neighborhoods. And so today, at the beginning of this look into what's going on with I-375, we just want to feature the voices of some of those people, people who lived there, people whose parents and grandparents started businesses there, people who played there, went to the bars, went to the nightclubs people who shopped there at the grocery stores and the markets. They're the ones who stand to lose the most out of this project if it doesn't address what happened to them. But I think we should also think of it in terms of what they could gain. What could we do for them if we really leaned into the idea Of reckoning with what happened in that area, into the idea that we can repair what got broken. And so we start with those voices, with those stories, with their memories of a place that too many of us have long forgotten.
2: Reverend Franklin's church was down the street going north. Uh, a few blocks, and, and my dad uh, happened upon it or made arrangements to go there, and he began listening to Reverend Franklin because he had heard about this really dynamic preacher. And he uh, met Reverend Franklin, and they developed a friendship and relationship, and my dad began to record him in his church, in his live, uh, uh, record, uh, live uh, 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 services, and these, these services were attended by hundreds of people. And often uh, my dad would play the records that he recorded. He would play them through a loudspeaker uh, on, his, on the record shop in the storefront. On the storefront, he had speakers there. And people would just have church service and shout and run all in the street. Just like when they played the blues, they would dance right there in the street.
3: Is he doing these every day? Is this only on Sundays? When on he Sundays, mm-hmm.
2: he would uh, record. He would play gospel music right. and Reverend C.L. Franklin's music and record.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and then he would play the records, you know. Uh, but. Uh,
3: later that Sunday.
2: Later that Sunday. Yeah. But uh, elders tell me that uh, my dad played this music through those loudspeakers every day. Okay. Because they would get up in the morning and they would hear the music coming from Joe's Record Shop. Mm. And uh, and I remember that my dad always did that, even on 12th Street. But uh, through his association with Reverend C.L. Franklin, uh, he began to record Aretha, his daughter, who was about 13, 14 years old at that time. And her talent was so obvious at that time that um, he began to record her, and he recorded his, her first gospel albums there.
0: That was Marsha Music, a local poet and journalist and friend of the show here on Detroit Today, talking about her memories. Of Black Bottom and Paradise Valley here in the city of Detroit. She was interviewed by Nick Austin, who's a producer here on the show and a co host. You also heard from Bert Deering, who is the owner of Bert's Marketplace over in Eastern Market, about his memories of Black Bottom. Okay, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to continue to hear voices of the folks who lived and grew up in Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. When we come back, Nick Austin will be here in the studio with me. He did these interviews with the folks from Black Bottom. We'll also get going on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number here. That's 313 1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Tell us what you think about the plans to reimagine I 375. Are we headed in the right direction? Are we thinking about justice, fixing the things that got broken for the people in those neighborhoods? We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
2: Estan escuchando WDET. Apna Russian
0: WDET. We are on 101.9 WDET. You're listening
4: to 101.9 WDET. In
0: so many ways The project to reimagine I-375 in downtown Detroit is a test of this community. It's a test of our commitment to things like reconciliation and justice. It's a test of our fortitude to stare down mistakes we made in the past and make them right. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Steven Henderson. And as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. Today, as I said earlier, we are beginning a mini series here on Detroit Today that's taking a look at the different aspects of the project to reimagine I 375 and asking a very simple question Are we doing what this moment calls us to do here? Are we headed in a direction that would repair some of the things that got broken, that would bring justice to those who were dealt injustice at the time? Over the next several weeks, we'll take a look at all of the different dimensions of this project and all of the questions that they raise. I'm joined in studio right now by Nick Austin. He is a producer here on Detroit Today and a co host, and he has conducted. Several interviews with people who have roots in the neighborhoods that were destroyed by I 375 and the construction of Lafayette Park, which is right next to it. That's Black Bottom and Paradise Valley, two historically significant neighborhoods for African Americans here in the city of Detroit. Nick, welcome to the studio. It's very good to be with you, Stephen. Uh, Tell us a little, Nick, about these conversations. I mean, I've listened to the tape and it's incredible to hear not just the details of what people are talking about, but the emotion behind it. I think for a lot of people, this is a kind of phantom issue in, in all of this. They don't know people who were from Black Bottom or had businesses in Paradise Valley. They don't interact with that part of our community. And so they don't really know what this was like. On these tapes, on these interviews, you can hear that. You can hear what they feel.
3: It's been a very enriching experience, Stephen. You know, I've heard about Black Bottom. I've heard about Paradise Valley. You see documentaries. You see some videos on it. But while I know it at that level, when we set about this project, I wanted to take it on as someone who, again, I grew up on the west side. And honestly, my parents, they talked about different areas in Detroit, certainly. I didn't hear that much about Black Bottom. So I know the story, but I didn't really know the people. So I wanted to get an opportunity to really hear from the folks who were there. And Stephen, it's it's really amazing. It's a history that we're starting to lose as some folks get a little bit older in age, but it took me to wonderful places. I got to hang out at Burt's Marketplace and really talk to folks in their element about what they experienced. Got to go to St. Patrick Senior Center. Wonderful place, by the way. Talk to folks there. You really hear the stories of folks who put in perspective, while you can say what a community it was, you hear from them why it was a little special, why they have such an affinity for it, Hear why it was so valuable. And you also hear about the roots of the name, Stephen, right? Because I think a lot of us think Black Bottom, I would say instinctively, because that's where all the black name people were, the people. right? But that's <laughs> <was> not, not. <laughs> why it was named that. And I learned this from a wonderful woman, Gloria Hopkins, who shared some time with me. She advised me of what the roots of the Black Bottom name was really all about.
4: Many, many people do not know why they call that area Black Bottom. And I am here to tell you clearly, it was due to the rich, rich soil that we had. And every year we had a garden in the backyard, I think we grew every vegetable there was to grow. And we ate fresh vegetables out of our garden, and that is why it is named Black Bottom, due to the rich soil.
3: I love that story, not only because she was taking an opportunity, not only to set me in my place in a very loving way, by the way, she's a wonderful woman, but also because it tells the experience of folks who think, hey, it was maybe a lower income community. Wasn't as much going on there. But you even hear it from her right there. She says we were planting our own food in this rich soil. We ate fresh food in this own environment. That says something I think about the community, about the people that were there. That's why it's important to hear these stories. It was really fascinating to take part in this, Stephen. I think one of the things that has always come across to me about Black Bottom and Paradise
0: Valley was that it they were bigger than the particulars about what 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 made those communities. In other words, the economics The racism that forced African-Americans to live in areas like that are for certain parts of the history there. But within that and beyond that, you have these incredible experiences uh, that African-Americans had with their families, with each other, and with the institutions that existed in, in that area. And that's what feels so powerful for them, for the folks who lived there, for the families who came from there, from the people who had businesses uh, and ran the institutions uh, in that neighborhood, is that feeling, that connection that goes beyond how rich or poor somebody was, or whether you rented or owned your house. Uh, Those things are important, but they aren't the things that people reach back
3: in their minds to think about. That's right. And you hear a lot about neighborhood. Gloria, again, was very giving with her time. She told me so many stories of the reasons what she really looks back and remembers about the place, including how important the neighborhood was to her and what it was like just growing up and being able to play.
4: We played all kinds of games, but when the streetlights came on, You better be on the top step. And I used to say to my sister, why do we have to be on the top step? Why can't we be on the bottom step? You better be on that top step when those streetlights came on. So I just, that neighborhood, we just had so many just wonderful people. We just, we were like one huge family. In the winter, we went ice skating. We had a hill in the area, and my brother and I, we were the ones that were always ice skating or on the sleds, and swimming was one of the excellent ones. It was a recreation center we called the DUS, and we went there just about every day. You came home from school. You took your school clothes off. You put on your little junk clothes, and you did your chores. You knew what your chores were, and you did them, or else, and you don't want to know what the else was.
3: (laughs) I didn't ask Gloria what the else was, but <laughs> you, can really, <laughs> you can really hear, for example, a recreational center right there within walking distance that was so important to that community. You hear, again, the stories and, of course, a word that keeps coming up, and you know this very well, Stephen, family, mm. and not just with your immediate family, everyone around you.
0: Yeah, that idea that because, in some ways, of the forced segregation that created these neighborhoods... Uh, there was an extra sense of connection to the other people who were there. Uh, You find that very frequently in in historically black communities, this idea that uh, we are bigger as a whole than we are as individuals. And and that is one of the compelling reasons that we need to be talking about and, and certainly exploring more publicly that history as we think about the reimagining of, of I-375. Uh, the, the African-American community in Detroit lost so much of the things that we hear in these conversations when the freeway was built. And there isn't a way to literally bring it back. There's no way to literally figure, uh, you know, to send us back in time to recreate what was lost but I think the question is: How do we restore what we took away from the people who lost it? How do we give them a sense of being whole after having lost what they what they did? And that's a very difficult uh, conversation. I'm I, I am critical of the conversation we've had before already, and certainly of the plans that I've seen for that area. Uh, but I am I am. Uh, sympathetic and patient about the fact that this is hard uh, that that this is not something we do every day in the city or the state or this country and that we need uh, a kind of leadership to emerge that will take us to these spaces force us to stare what happened in the face and to think about how to make it
3: how to make it right It's an opportunity now with these conversations, of course, also, Stephen, to again, for folks who might not be as familiar uh, with the area. Hey, I grew up here. And again, like I said, it didn't really come up in conversations I had with family members. So even I, someone who was from Detroit, gets now an opportunity to hear from folks who live there. Of course, a little bit later on, as you mentioned, Stephen, we're going to talk about uh, potential solutions. We're going to talk about things people are thinking of doing in the area. Uh, But over the course of today and over the course of the series, as we have these conversations, really getting to dive into what the community was like, a multicultural aspect also that's going to be popping in here, too, because there were certainly other folks who lived there outside of the African-American community. But a lot of an impact was happening there Due to the businesses, and of course it's that Hastings Street that you're going to keep hearing come up over and over again, that was really like a center, a place that had a lot of the businesses, a lot of the commerce that was happening within walking distance from people. Uh, Bert Deering, Jr., again, who we spoke about, who owns Bird's Place, Burt's Marketplace, over there in Eastern Market. He discussed uh, how his family and how business was important to uh, the community in Hastings Street and when he grew up, as well as with his family members.
1: My grandfather had... Uh two or three houses on Willis between Haston and Rivard. And I know they took out his houses that were there at that particular time. Reverend Franklin's father had a church on Willis and Haston. You had the Willis show that that was there. So that was a whole commercial strip. You had everything on Haston Street. I mean, when people came in town or Sunday when you got dressed up, you just rolled down Haston Street just to see it and then you would ride out to Belle Isle. It was a place to see. Brewster Center was there. You had Cunningham Drugstore. You had uh, the Warfield show, the Castle show, the Arcade show. Uh, Even Receiving Hospital was uh, right off Haston, between Haston and Senate Wine, Memorial Hospital. So everything was connected off Haston Street, going to Senate Wine or going from Haston to Rivard. And people don't know you had Fago, all the companies, everything extended off Haston Street, either to the west or to the east.
3: It's good to know that Fago was still such an important (laughs) part of their growing up, because I know it certainly was for me, (laughs) Stephen.
0: Well, I mean, you, you hear in these conversations all of these references to things that those of us who grew up here and those of us who even just live here now recognize. Fago, there is no more... A symbol, I think, associated with with Detroit in a commercial way than Fago, uh, soda, Vernards uh, or Strohs. Maybe maybe rivals that. Uh, but but you also heard Bert Deering talking about Reverend Franklin, yeah. uh, C.L. Franklin, whose daughter Aretha Franklin, of course, becomes a, a superstar musician. Uh, but the idea that these were families that just were part of the community. At the time that Burt Deering is is growing up, of course, um, Aretha Franklin is not yet who she would later become. And she was just part of a family here in the in the city. And that was what mattered in places like Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. It's what we lost when those things were, were taken away. And to hear someone like Burt Deering talk about the cost of that— uh, again, is is powerful, but it is such an important part of the conversation that we're having about what to do now. If you're going to get rid of uh, I-375, what do you do? What do you bring back? And how do you include families like these in the conversation?
3: Yeah. And you mentioned, of course, family, Aretha Franklin, CL Franklin, everybody remembers that. But Uh, Much like we're talking about now with the auto industry and how the car manufacturing has a secondary tertiary impact on those around it. Families like the Franklin family also had a secondary third impact on everyone in the community because so much of it was about togetherness. We learned that again with Marsha Music who we heard from a little bit in the beginning of the show who discussed how important how her father kind of got his start in recording some of the work that C.L. Franklin did but that came from the humble beginnings he had creating his own record shop right there in Black Bottom. It's an interesting story to hear Marsha tell how her dad got his start creating that record shop?
2: Well, my father's record shop was a kind of almost ragtaggle, glorified man cave. (laughs) It was a very serious venture. Uh, He uh, opened his record store and at first uh, populated it with records from his children. He raided his children's record collections when he got the opportunity to open the storefront on 3530 Hastings. Mm -hmm. And so I was just a little girl when the record store was on Hastings. My memories of Hastings basically consist of playing with his cat, Tom, who lived back there and scrounging around the record shop. He had uh, microphones and such, and we would bang on the piano in the back of the record store. But I was uh, very young uh, in those days. I do remember looking out the door, the front door, onto Hastings Street and looking at the traffic.
3: It's just so amazing, again, to hear the stories. You can hear that connection. And when I was talking to Marsha, you could just see her kind of coming back to that moment. And She was a little girl, as she mentioned, during that time. But still, a thing that comes up over and over again, it was community, reliance, how everybody there kind of took care of each other. We're going to have stories about that a little bit later on, Stephen. But I do think it's interesting that to get your business venture off the ground, you would decide to ransack your own children's uh, <laughs> collection of music. What says capitalism more than that, Steven? <laughs> <laughs> That's right.
0: Give me your stuff. We gotta sell it. Okay, we're gonna take a quick break. And when we come back, we will continue to hear more of the voices of people who grew up in or were part of families that lived in Black Bottom or uh, had businesses in Paradise Valley. This is the beginning of a mini-series that we're doing here on Detroit today that we're calling Reckoning I-375, in which we will look deeper into many of the aspects of the plans to reimagine the highway whose construction helped destroy two predominantly black neighborhoods near downtown Detroit. We'll also get to you on the phones and on social. Give us a call. Let us know if you have memories of Black Bottom or Paradise Valley. Let us know what you think of the plans that are on the board right now to redo that area. Are they headed in the right direction? Are they considering the idea of reconciliation or restorative justice? What are we supposed to do? with i375 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones that's 313-577-1019 you can also go to twitter and hashtag detroit today and we'll work you into the conversation that way we'll be right back with more detroit today This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Steven Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us. Today, we are beginning a mini series here on Detroit Today that will run uh, every, fr- every Friday for the next few weeks into November in which we're taking a look at the plans to reimagine I-375. We're calling the miniseries Reckoning I-375 because here at Detroit Today, we believe this is a call to reckon with our past, to reckon with the things that were wrong with the construction of I-375 and Lafayette Park, the neighborhood next to it, uh, the effect that those things had on two predominantly African-American neighborhoods, Black Bottom and Paradise Valley that had been there for years. As we think about getting rid of that highway, shouldn't we be thinking about ways that we could make the people who lost so much in that transition whole? And what does that mean? What would it look like? to repair the damage that was done to the people in that area. We want to hear from you during the conversation as well. 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phone. So that's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can work you into the conversation. We'd love to hear from our listeners about how they're taking in all of these ideas about I-375. Do you think it's headed in a direction that would create a more just outcome for the families who lost so much when those neighborhoods were destroyed? Or are we missing the opportunity? That's the feeling that I get over and over again, that there's a call here to do something spectacular and grand in order to fix what went wrong. And the plans that are on the board just don't quite do it for me. They don't quite say that we're focused enough, I guess, uh, on that reconciliation. I've got Nick Austin in the studio with me. He is a producer here on Detroit Today and a co-host. Uh, he has done a number of interviews with folks who either lived in Black Bottom or had were part of families that had businesses in, in Paradise Valley. We've been listening back to those conversations as a way to kick off this mini-series. What better way to frame the conversation about this project than to hear from the people who were affected? Uh, I want to go quickly to the phones here and uh, get some of our listeners involved in the conversation. Felix in Detroit, uh, welcome to the show. What's on your mind?
1: Uh, Good morning, uh, Steve. I just wanted to say that, um, you know, we live in a capital society, and it seems like uh, the plan that to the, you know, when they first built 375 was an opportunity for others to come in,
0: not have to compete with us as uh, a community, as a culture, and like our, um, we're more like disposable
1: money and seems like they're just it was a plan bigger than what we just you know what it looks like here on uh, just on the uh, face surface you know
0: yeah uh felix so. i i really appreciate the call and and the comments and and again looking back at what happened and why is one of the things that we're going to get to uh in this mini-series uh our our next episode next friday in fact Will look more closely at the history of Black Bottom and uh, Paradise Valley and, and and look into why uh, these neighborhoods were destroyed. The things that you're talking about, the decisions that were made about the people that were there, the value they had or didn't have, uh, and what people imagined uh, could could replace them. Uh, it's an it's an incredible uh, set of decisions that were made. Uh, and and we are really uh trying in this mini series to to surface all of that and really uh, bring it to the fore. Uh, Nick, we do have more conversations that we want to highlight though before we uh, before we end the show a little
3: later. We do, and you know, I have a lot of conversations here actually dovetailing off of what was uh, just said there, and thanks again for calling with that. We do have that uh, folks were talking about when I spoke to them, they felt as though they didn't necessarily have input in what was happening there. So, uh, you know, it's something that came up. So it's a story that we can actually get into a little bit later. But I do want to continue the story, actually, of Marsha's record shop, Marsha's dad's record shop, I should say, Joe Von Battle on Hastings Street, because it's really interesting. It actually kind of gets into and dovetails not only that there's multiple businesses doing things in terms of music and records there, but also a little bit of the multiculturalism and some of the unique characters that you could find in the place. We have Marsha Music right now talking about uh, what she referred to or or some of the people that she ran into while she was hanging out in Black Bottom.
2: Uh, There was a vestige of businesses that were holdouts that were trying to hold on as long as possible. And one of them was a wholesale record shop that was in the area where my dad's record shop had been. And he was still there. And his name was the Mad Russian. That's what we called him. That's what everybody called him, the Mad Russian. And I do know today now that his actual name was, I believe, Aaron Harris. And he was an older Jewish man, a real curmudgeon. He had a big beard and big kinky hair. And he would... Cummudging around his his record place. So my dad would take us over there to buy wholesale records uh, to take back to his 12th Street store. And it is at that place that I remember standing outside of that record place and my dad standing there with me overlooking this huge crevasse, uh, the, the diggings for I seventy five a gigantic hole, and I I always do remember him saying, "This this used to be Hastings."
3: So powerful, mm-hmm. it's so powerful a picture to picture there, right? To be sitting there and then looking. You know, I asked her if she ever found out what happened with the Mad Russian, as she, they called him, and she's not sure. Yeah. But he tried to hold out for a long time, Stephen. Yeah,
0: I mean the stories of how all of this happens to the neighborhood and the reaction of the people there is one of the things that we really hope to get to in this mini series especially in the next episode when we're talking about the history of that area uh, how it came together uh, what it was and then what the decision looked like uh, to be able to get rid of all of it just get get it, just plunder it all in in favor of Uh, a new neighborhood, and a highway. Uh, In the miniseries, we'll also take a really close look at what's happening now, what are the plans to reimagine I-375, and why they seem lacking. Uh, We'll also think about what other cities have done to address this question. It's not just Detroit. Detroit. That is rethinking highways. There are several cities around the country that have gotten federal money, in fact, to do this. We're going to take a look at some of those, uh, see how we could learn, mimic, or borrow from what's happening in those places. We'll also talk about this project from the standpoint of transit. This is a six-lane highway right now that the Michigan Department of Transportation says we should make into a six-lane road at surface level. Is that the smartest thing we could be doing? I know we love our wide streets and highways here in Metro Detroit, but as we look into a future that is going to be different with regard to transit. Are those the smartest choices we could be making right now? Uh, We'll also explore some ideas, just ideas that people have about how you would go about making this into a restorative project. How would you make sure that the people who are wronged here uh, got some consideration in this? What could you build where I-375 is that would not just look to the future but try to repair the past? There are lots of people who are thinking about this and talking about this. They aren't, I think – as central in the project uh, as they should be. But uh, what we will hope to do on the miniseries is get more of that out there in the public discussion.
3: Yeah, you know, I think that, as you mentioned, there's a lot of places to look at with this. And one of the things also to think about, and this did come up in some of my conversations, not everybody has the same response to what they think is the best. A lot of humility, a lot of folks saying, I'm not sure what's the best, but, you know, we want to have consideration. We want to have people... Take into account what we're thinking about when it comes to this, but also some of the things that uh, I think is, is really important is there are folks who use the freeway now, and that's something that we're going to get into also. There might be some people who think, well, look, the damage is done. We've done, but now a new community, the communities that are here now are relying on this, what does it mean for us? So, when we're looking at this, it's in terms of a wholesale solution. What we're just mostly trying to make sure we do is have the good conversation about it that we feel like maybe didn't happen back when this first occurred, so that this time, if we have an opportunity to do something, We can do it maybe a little bit better, Steve. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
0: Who do we have next in our
3: conversations with folks Uh, who are from the area? Well, you got to go back to Gloria Hopkins because she is just fantastic. One of my favorites talking about, speaking of the multiculturalism uh, that we have in there, uh, she talked about just how having people of different ethnicities around, everybody still felt like family, including a memory that would make my nasal cavities, make my tummy just a little bit Uh, more hungry.
4: (laughs) We had a walk-in pantry. I know how to can peaches like an expert in the mason or the ball canning jars. We had two peach trees in our backyards. And many of the neighbors had pear trees, we had cherry trees, and we also had apricot trees. And during that era, everybody shared. Whatever you had, if someone didn't have it, we would share. As a matter of fact, we lived next door to some Syrian people who had a syrian bakery they had that strange bread as i would call it and speaking of bread down in black bottom it was the silver cup bread store bread was believe it or not 10 cent a loaf it was fresh bread you could spell that bread baking all over the place
3: yeah i can smell it right now when i was <laughs> talking to her about it but again something that came up a lot right the walkability Anything that you needed, even at a young age, you could just get it right there in the area. And it's something that I think is unique, especially, you know, I'm not used to that. When I was growing up, you know, I had to get in my car to get to places and get things done. So it's a very unique experience. People talking about not locking their doors, talking about getting a cup of flour, which I know a lot of us understand and experience. But the reason I bring all of this up is for that area. It's my understanding. One of the things people talked about was it was a little it was low income. Right. So they thought, well, if we do, it, it will be okay if we put uh, I-375 here because not great things are happening there mm-hmm. anyway. Mm-hmm. However, what you hear is that for the people that were there, uh, there was a lot of good things, a lot of wonderful things happening. And
0: that's a universal quality, I think. When you think of the place that you're from, when right. you think of the place that you grew up, you don't think about who had money or who didn't. You don't think about who drove what car necessarily. You do remember— the sights of where you grew up, the things that you saw every day, the people that you saw every day. You do remember the sounds of where you grew up. What did you hear? Uh, when you walked out the door or went to a friend's house or walked to school and you think about the things that you could smell, that's such an important part of uh, place for people is what does it smell like? I grew up in uh, downtown Detroit in, in the east, the sort of Lower East Side near Lafayette Park for a long time. The one smell that always uh makes me think of childhood is the the brewing of beer mm. uh, the stro brewery on Gratiot was always close by wherever we lived in that area and yes, especially on summer days when you're outside that was that was what you remember uh, gloria talking about the smell of that bakery uh ties her not just to that neighborhood and those memories it ties her to all of us and i think that's one of the important things uh, to think about here Uh, This was a poor neighborhood that was predominantly African-American and was pushed away. Uh, But all of us have a place that we feel the way uh, the folks from Black Bottom and Paradise Valley feel about their neighborhoods. Uh, This is is us as Americans. This was not just some other people losing everything they had. Uh, It's reflective of all of us.
3: It's also a example, you know, we talk about the homes, the communities, you're going to have those everywhere. But again, to highlight, they were operating businesses that folks there relied on and were able to get the things that they needed from also. You could get your bread that you needed, get your milk, get your fish, all of that was available right there in the community. I can only imagine what may have happened for folks there who had an opportunity for that record store to keep on going, maybe expanded, maybe get bigger, maybe create another chain elsewhere. It's something that we're not gonna be able to know, but it's from those foundations, those roots that you are able to have growth. And uh, that's one of the reasons why it's important for us to discuss.
0: Okay, that is going to do it for us on Detroit Today this week. I want to thank all of our listeners for joining us next Friday on Reckoning I-375. We are going to talk uh, more deeply about the history of that area with folks who really understand how it came to be, uh, how it went away, and why. What happened that I-375 and lafayette Park replaced Black Bottom and Paradise Valley. And of course, we will also be back on Monday with more great program for you here on Detroit today. This is 1019 WDET FM, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again on Monday.